Hello, dreamers, and welcome to this week's episode. Before we get into it, I have a couple of things to say about this podcast. This is an independent, ad-free show, which means I depend solely on your listenership and support, and there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on any of your favorite directories. That helps give the podcast more visibility so more listeners can find us. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have a couple of extra dollars each month, which I know is kind of tough, but maybe you've run out of content and you need more help getting through your day, by subscribing to our Patreon, you can gain access to somewhere around 90 bonus episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And I do want to point out that with the exception of a handful of episodes in the beginning, after I first launched Patreon, all of them are just about the same length and they're full episodes like you find in the regular feed. So it's a pretty decent deal and it starts at only a dollar a month. Every subscriber gets a monthly bonus. And if a subscription is not your thing and you'd like to help out through PayPal, you can use the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I would like to thank Nikki C., Mindy E., Brittany, Jamie Lee, Elizabeth L., Michael M., Denise M., Karen P., Shonda B., Sassy H., and Layla B. for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or donating through PayPal. If you have not heard your shout-out, fear not. I have more coming for those of you who joined in August. Also starting Monday, August 29th, 2022 at 10 a.m. Central Time, the Labor Day sale starts on the California Dreaming Shop on Threadless. So that will run for one week. Make sure you check and choose your designs carefully. Sometimes the size and shape of the artwork that I uploaded isn't going to always work on certain products and might not fit or be cut off. It's pretty easy to tell when you're clicking around. The link for the shop is in the show notes. All right, let's get started with today's episode. The reason I chose this story for this week's episode is because I recently covered a feuding neighbor case out of Northern California on Patreon. That was a second premium bonus that I released exclusively for those who subscribe at the slightly higher tier levels. I don't always have the chance to do that because of time, but August had been a pretty productive month for me, so I was able to pull it off. While not everybody got a chance to listen to it, I did release a 10-minute preview on your regular show feeds so that you could listen to a sample of what it's like over on Patreon in case you're still deciding on whether or not it's worth a go. And while most of the feedback on that episode was positive, not all of it was, I'm not going to address what was said to me here on the show because you can go over to Patreon and read it for yourself. It's in the comment section of that Patreon bonus that was last released. And in case it gets taken down, it's copy and pasted in my response. I also had an unhappy Apple podcast reviewer leave one star and called the posting of my 10-minute trailer of the premium bonus lame. I have to admit that the negative response hurt my feelings for two reasons. 
One, for the first time in a really long time, I felt like I was keeping up with my obligations that I've set for myself to the show and to you. And two, I really liked the episode. I thought it was a good balance of suspense and storytelling with a little bit of humor on the side for some levity. But boy, did I read at least one person in the room wrong. Well, I moped around for about a week, but I decided that for me, the best way to bounce back from that would be to bring you another crazy feuding neighbor story that I ran across during all of my TV binge watching while wallowing in bed in my own self-pity. And while I love a good California case just as much as the next person, sometimes there's nothing like a case out of good old Florida that picks you up when you're feeling down. Which is where we will be traveling today in this 234th episode of California Dreaming. This is my redemption episode, the tale of when the psychologist loses it. The backdrop of today's story is a place along the central west coast of Florida. It's the side facing the Gulf of Mexico, and it's called Longboat Key. It's this narrow stretch of land that lies parallel to Florida off the coast. At first, you might want to call it an island, but the main difference is the K is a low bank or reef of coral or rock or sand that forms on the surface of a coral reef, while an island is a piece of subcontinental land surrounded by water. It's called a K or a key derived from the Spanish words Cayo, I think it's Cayo, C-A-Y-O, which means small island. Longboat Key is long and it stretches across two Florida counties, Manatee and Sarasota, and today the population sits at around 7,300 people. Back in 2002, the population of Longboat Key increased by three when the Villar family relocated there from New Jersey. They were dad and husband, Jean-Pierre, who we will refer to as JP moving forward, his wife, Erica, and their daughter, Laura, who was eight years old at the time that they arrived in Florida. In an interview Laura gave in 2016 about this story, she said that she and her family visited Florida pretty regularly. They loved it down there a lot, so when it was decided that they were going to move there, she was pretty excited. And from how I described it to you, it seems like everywhere you look, you're just about surrounded by water and beaches for days. In every direction you turn, since you're on a key, it's even more stretches of shoreline than just your average old beach, but the waters are calm. They are shallower due to the coral reefs that give it a barrier to the swells and to the waves. And then there's the alligators. Other than that, you're good. The house that the Villars were going to move into was being rented by a friend of the family named Daniel Schiffler. He was fixing to move out, so he worked out a deal with the homeowner where the Villars would be able to just move right in. So it worked out perfectly for everybody, right? Yeah, we'll see. Making the move to Florida wasn't something that the Villar family just did one day out of the blue. Like, they weren't sitting around and decided, hey, let's move 1,200 miles or 1,900 kilometers just for the heck of it. You see, JP had been a carpenter by trade, 
And because of a pretty serious back injury that he suffered while doing some heavy lifting at work, it pretty much put him out of commission. He was going to require some pretty serious back surgery to fix his problems, and the whole thing was going to prevent him from being able to work for quite some time. While JP was going to be able to continue to support his family and himself on workers' compensation insurance, he really didn't like not working. So in order to try and make the best of a difficult situation, he figured if his family was on board with the idea, why not recover while laying on the sandy shores of western central Florida? I imagine that it was also easier to recover from lots of things involving injuries that make it difficult to get around and to move about when you're in warmer climates. I don't know if Florida would be my number one choice. That always seems like the first place that retirees think of going to spend their golden years. But because it was such a favorite vacation destination, and with JP, who was only 39 years old at the time, he was no longer tied down to a job in Jersey, so the family packed it up and headed south. JP was not the type of person who wanted to be sitting around after being taken down by a back injury, but he was doing what he could to make the best of it, not only for himself, but for his family as well. But still, he was a family man through and through. His daughter and his wife were his world. It meant everything to him to be able to take care of them and to provide for them. So having to sit this out for a while couldn't have been easy. Making the move made it a little bit easier, it seemed, with neighbors who were welcoming to the newcomers, and they described the Villars as a really loving, happy family. And a pair of those neighbors included Holly Bodner, and a gentleman I believe is best described as Holly's live-in boyfriend, Ted Higby. They lived right next door, so when the Villars moved in, I got the feeling that Holly was kind of like the neighborhood busybody. I don't want to call her one of those types of middle-aged ladies that frequently get caught on video acting rude, foolish, and entitled. But you know who I'm talking about. They get labeled with a name that starts with the K and rhymes with a Sharon. I promised a long time ago that I wouldn't use the term. But, you know, her name is Holly, and she spells it with an I, which for some reason... I found to be kind of annoying. I don't know why. Because I guess I'm so used to it being with a Y. No hate out there for anybody with the name Holly with an I. But somehow for me, that has the same impact. Calling her Holly with an I. I bet she goes around saying that. And I bet she dots the I with like a happy face or something stupid like that. But yeah, even though we don't know Holly just yet... The tone of her personality, her vibe, her energy, it's very Holly with an eye-ish. In the dramatization in the TV show that I watched on this, the actress who portrays Holly says to Ted, So I guess the new neighbors are moving in today. And she said it with tone. And I'm not going to be biased by this actress's annoying inflection. I just want you to know that I can separate the real Holly and the fake Holly. And I do know how the story ends, so honestly, this is the last thing the real Holly should be offended by. In fact, I think she should be pretty flattered, all things considered. 
Holly Bodner is a psychologist licensed by the state of Florida. She operated her own private practice, so she isn't just your average everyday Holly with an I. She studied clinical psychology at Hofstra University in Long Island. As far as I can tell, Holly is originally from New York, having graduated from John Brown High School in Queens. She went on to earn her doctorate in psychology at the Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne, which is located on Florida's eastern central coast. And from 1987 to 2003, Holly had her private practice in forensic neuropsychology in Sarasota, which is just about a 25-minute drive off the key where she resided and onto the mainland of Florida. Neighbors described Holly as a highly intelligent woman who, despite having a boyfriend, didn't really seem to need him all that much, as she oftentimes came across as not only very intelligent, but also independent, capable, and secure on her own. The perception that the neighbors had was that this was the Holly with an eye show when it came to her and her relationship with Ted. He was involved in the antiquities business. He's a guy that seemed to have been much more relaxed and laid back, but at the same time, he was very much subservient to the much more outspoken and assertive Holly. I mean, again, I don't know them, but based on some of the things that have been said about the couple by people who knew them, Ted was more like a prop on the stage at the Holly show, starring Holly, written, produced, and directed by Holly. A journalist who covered this case, named Robert Patrick, said in his words, it was all Holly, Holly, Holly. And yeah, that sounds about right, and you will come to see that as the story goes along here. Holly and Ted do not have any children, but they do have a dog named Pumpkin. And the reason why I bring this up is because it seems like the way that Holly and Ted became acquainted with their new neighbors, JP, Erica, and their daughter, Laura. And kids, of course, tend to really love animals. I mean, adults do too. But kids, they have this real innate passion for animals. And you can see it whenever you see videos online of a family getting their child a puppy. It's pretty much 100% of the time, every child just automatically bursts into tears of joy. And it's one of the purest forms of emotional expressions when it comes to children. So eight-year-old Laura quickly becomes fast friends with Pumpkin. I mean, my three dogs, they don't seem to necessarily like adults, particularly men, right off the bat. But they warm up to women and they warm up to children even faster. You all know what I'm talking about. Whatever vibe that dogs get off of small humans, it just seems to be a thing that they know and understand that these are little people. And so even though Holly might seem to be rather kind of unneighborly and frigid, even seeing your pets get excited and happy and playful could thaw her out just a little bit. And it's a win for the Vilars, all the joys of having a fun puppy without all the responsibility, kind of like playing with your friend's kids. They're all super fun and playful and then you're over it and you're happy you don't have to feed, bathe, house, or educate them for the next decade and a half. That's how they all met. Pumpkin running out into the yard, right over to play with Laura. And from there, everything was all copacetic. 
It wasn't too long after the Villars moved in and became acquainted with Holly and Ted that the couple invited their new neighbors over for lunch or barbecue. And according to Laura's 2016 interview, they had a really great time. It was a very nice welcome to the neighborhood. Everything was off to a great start. Since JP was staying at home, taking care of his back until he got that surgery that he needed to schedule, Laura stayed home too while he homeschooled her. In the meantime, Erica found a part-time job working at a video store. That was still a thing. I mean, certain kinds of video stores still exist, but I'm talking about like Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, things of that sort. This was 2002, so it was still the glory days of the video store, which began falling to the wayside towards the end of the 2000s, going into the 2010s with the rise of Netflix and other streaming services. Now, there's no denying that Holly does have a much more demanding job working in forensic neuropsychology than the Villars, but that is in no means to disparage or undermine what they do. Not everybody has the wherewithal or the personality type to go into the field of neuropsychology, but still, there's something to be said for the everyday working family. Nothing wrong with that at all. It's just different. And it seemed as if from the beginning, it wasn't going to be too much of a culture clash between the psychologist and the carpenter. But then again, maybe it was. If one of them had attempted to keep their feelings tamped down for the sake of neighborliness when they first met. Laura, like many eight-year-olds, was a social creature. She was very sweet and friendly and outgoing, and she quickly grabbed the attention of some of the other children in the neighborhood. Before long, they were all gravitating over to the Villar house to play and ride bikes and to hang out to do whatever it is that the neighborhood kids do. She's homeschooled, so this is her social life. They tended to play in the streets also. Kids, they leave their stuff around, their bikes and their scooters and their jackets, everything everywhere. But, you know, we make efforts to just be careful and look out for one another. If you have a good relationship with the kids in the neighborhood, you might be able to give them a friendly reminder to not leave their bike out on the sidewalk. It's something that's totally not a big deal. I don't know about these days, though. I don't interact with a lot of the neighbors. And if the kids are playing around the complex where we live, I just try to drive carefully. I don't get angry if they're racing around on their bikes or whatever. I just attempt to stay out of their way because it's just not a big deal to me. But nowadays, it's hard to gauge whether or not you can or should say something to children or to their parents without having to worry if they're going to fly off the handle at you anymore, you know? There's much to be said about the way that you say something or how you approach somebody. You can come off as sounding kind of like a bitch, and it's just all bad from the beginning. Sometimes people are overly sensitive, or you didn't mean to come off as a bitch. But... For the most part, parents usually seem to tend to their children properly by correcting them and supervising them. Not always. However, I do think that mostly moms and dads don't want their kids running around acting like little assholes everywhere that they go. Whatever the case, there's a tactful way of doing things and then there's not. 
And then there's Holly's way. She was not a fan of all the little rugrats running around outside, and I guess that would make them lawn rats, not rugrats. We don't put rugs in our front lawn, I don't think. She didn't like the playing and the noise and the toys and the bikes strewn all about, so the Villars began noticing that Pumpkin was pooping in their yard and Holly and Ted were not picking up after him. And you know, the front yards just kind of go from one yard to the next. There didn't seem to be a fence or anything between their property lines and Pumpkin was one of those good boys who could run out into the yard and do his business and run back inside, which is great. That is if Pumpkin has his front yard surveyed and he would know where his poopy zone is and where the neighbor's yard begins. I seriously doubt that that's the case because he seems to be going over into the Villar's yard and doing his business. The front yard is a place where Laura plays all the time, along with her friends. She's out there in her bare feet, and her dad was pretty annoyed that Holly and Ted were not cleaning up after Pumpkin. JP mentioned it to Holly one morning, and she denied knowing anything about her pumpkin leaving poop stacks in their yard. I mean, that's totally not a big deal, right? I mean, it shouldn't really escalate too much far beyond that, don't you think? Well, I have to tell you this. And this is what I mean about neighbors being weird about stuff. Okay, so there was this kid. I think he was like maybe 12 or 13 years old. He used to walk his dachshund every day past my apartment. I'm on the second floor, so my bedroom window, where I sit a good portion of the day at my computer working on this show, overlooks the area where he went by all the time. Over the course of maybe about three weeks or so, I saw his dachshund go potty and the boy didn't pick it up. This was during COVID, so the kids were home all day long during the day. Anyway, the next time it happened, I snapped a pic from my window of the little doxy doing its thing, but I didn't do anything with the picture in the end. I came downstairs to see where he walked to, and the next morning I left a small note taped to that apartment's mailbox and said that I had noticed that their son was not picking up after their dog on about three occasions near where I walk my dogs every day too, so if they could be so kind, right? They moved out. Like a week later, I saw them packing up their whole apartment and the mom left a huge note pinned to the corkboard about how dare this person who was stalking their son, she's a single mom, blah, blah, blah. Too long, didn't read. But I was like, dang, overreacting much? So the moral of the story is I don't say anything to people anymore. I mean, stalking? What the hell? I could have ran down the stairs. Well, that's an exaggeration. I probably would have slowly walked down the stairs and went up to that kid and told him off at the top of my lungs, like a holly with an eye would. But I didn't. I tried being polite and discreet. It was so stupid. So she moved. And all I have to say is, newsflash lady, no matter where you go, you're still going to have to pick up after your dog and you got to train your kid to do the same. Anyway, that should be my only sidetrack of the day, I think. No promises, though. Okay? No one-star reviews either, please. <laughs>
Thank you. You know, it really shouldn't be all that big of a deal to ask somebody to pick up after their dog, but it seems that it's one of those things that turns really bad and contentious really fast for some reason. And Holly just didn't want to acknowledge it or deal with it or accept it or take responsibility for it, and I don't know why. It's not like the situation is going to start getting any better from there. I mean, she could have said something like, I'm not sure if that was my dog or not, but I'll be more vigilant about it in the future and I'll make sure to tell Ted the same thing. Seriously though, you know I have three dogs. I always clean up after them because we've always lived where there's children that play and I don't want it to be messy. I don't want it to be messy for myself either because I have to go and walk the dogs like three times a day. Imagine if I didn't pick up after them. It would be horrible outside and it's just gross and rude. Anyway, that is where all of this started. A poop war. Just like in our Patreon episode with Bob Hall and Walter Stevens. Something that started off as so minor turned into something so major. And because it's been said that Holly was annoyed with all of the kids playing in the Villar's yard, she could very well have looked the other way when Pumpkin was leaving his little droppings everywhere as this low-key way of expressing her disdain for children having fun outside. So, according to Laura, her dad was a type that had a pretty good, maybe sometimes twisted sense of humor. So when he spoke to Holly about the pumpkin poop, and she refused to clean it up. JP was like, well, Laura, let's just gift it back to her. He collected the poop. He didn't put it in a gift box, so that would have been so rad. He put it into a paper bag, folded down the top, and set it on Holly and Ted's front porch. Now, I don't agree that this was the right way to do things. It was his way of handling things according to his daughter, but I wouldn't have liked it if I was on the receiving end of that. But I also wouldn't have liked it if it was my husband that had done that to our neighbors. It's really getting things off to a bad start. And if we're being realistic, JP couldn't completely be 100% certain that it was Pumpkin's poop unless he was doing some forensics. And what's more, JP really doesn't know what kind of person he's dealing with here when it comes to Holly. And it's why, now, we proceed with caution when dealing with people these days. Stories just like this. So when Holly found the poop sack on her porch, she was mad and yelled at Ted about, look what JP had done. And Ted, being the gooberish sidekick of a boyfriend, was like, I'll take care of it, dear. But that really wasn't what Holly wanted. She told Ted to leave it and she decided to report the incident to the police. So when an officer showed up at his door, JP was surprised. This was hardly a thing that needed to involve law enforcement. He saw it as nothing more than a prank that both he and his eight-year-old got a good laugh from. But Holly wasn't messing around. She peered out her window as JP was speaking to the officer. He explained that it was his neighbor's dog that made that mess on his lawn and he was just returning it to its rightful owner. In the end, nothing came of it. 
The officer explained that this was not something that JP could do, that he could get a citation in the future, and they left it at that. JP was now on notice. He needed to cut it out with the middle school antics in his dealings with Holly. She doesn't play that. However, when Holly realized that JP was only given a warning about the dog poop, it only made her angrier. So she decided to go looking around on the internet to see what she can find out about these new neighbors of hers, particularly this JP Villar. She knew that they were from New Jersey, but she wanted to see what else was out there about him that she could dig up. Because for whatever reason, Dr. Holly wasn't happy about the police response to her poop complaint and she just wasn't going to let this go so easily. Because of her capacity as a psychologist, Holly did do some work for the county that she resided in, where she was involved in providing her expertise for some individuals who found themselves in trouble with the legal system. So she did work with criminal defendants and some who were looking to potentially be put on trial or possibly up for parole. And it was she who would weigh in with her expertise as to whether or not they were fit or competent or if they posed a danger to themselves or to anyone else, things of that nature. So she went ahead and inputted JP's name into whatever database that she typically accessed or had access to. And lo and behold, she found him. His name was in the system, listed as a convicted criminal with charges involving domestic violence, spousal abuse, child abuse, and drug charges to boot. Really ugly stuff. So now Holly and Ted have found themselves living next door to a violent domestic abuser. As far as she was concerned, this brought everything that was going on between them to a whole nother level. I mean here, a man right next door who is capable of hitting his wife and his young daughter, and now his passive aggressiveness is being targeted squarely at her. Holly was horrified when she discovered JP's dirty little secrets and all of his skeletons in his closet. No wonder they hightailed it out of New Jersey, so he could come to her safe and secure little neighborhood and start a whole new brand new anonymous life. Well, to her, with this poop-on-the-porch prank... Holly considered that JP firing the first shot. She wasn't about to stand by and let this violent man get away with it, because if he does, who knows what he'll be capable of next. For the first time, Holly felt vulnerable. Living next to this man, based on the little that she has seen thus far of him, she was potentially looking at being in a tremendous amount of danger. So now Holly is on high alert looking and listening and watching everything that she can when it comes to the Villars. And because of the way that their homes are situated right next to each other, they are in such close proximity and everyone has windows all over the place in order to be able to take in the exquisite view of Sarasota Bay or the Gulf of Mexico, depending on where they're located. So now Holly is watching everything that goes on inside the neighbor's house too especially if she gets an inkling that they might be arguing. And before long, Holly does start hearing raised voices. And one evening, while she's peering out her downstairs window into theirs, she sees JP hit Erica across the face. 
She goes running to report to Ted what she's just witnessed. So now Holly is more convinced than ever that everyone in this neighborhood is in danger. And she grows even more terrified. And the more she sees, the worse she thinks things are getting because now she has this information and this context to put around everything about JP. So both Ted and Holly launch this campaign to go around telling the neighbors about the violent criminals that they now have living in their midst. Anyone and everyone who would listen, they were talking to. As if JP were on a violent predator list or something. They were spreading the word that their new neighbor, John Villar, is a convicted, drug-addicted, domestic abuser, and child abuser. And it's kind of working. The neighbors started to kind of shy away from JP a little bit, but he's really not reading all that much into it because he still has this ongoing poop problem with Pumpkin. Half the time when JP goes outside to sit on his porch or just go about his day, he sees Pumpkin off the leash, going about his business, paying no mind to the property lines, until one day that JP got fed up and decided to pick Pumpkin up and take him home to Holly and Ted. From her window, Holly watched in horror as JP picked up her dog and began heading towards her house. She hurried and locked her front door and began screaming for Ted as she retrieved a knife out of the knife block. JP's knocking on the door, shouting her name, asking her to keep their dog in their own yard. But Holly, she's just convinced that JP is there, pounding on the door so violently because he's trying to break it down because she's refusing to open the door, not even to get her dog. I mean, poor pumpkin, right? Holly described JP as screaming at her in a drunken rage, threatening her life and Ted's life, threatening to harm Pumpkin. She screamed back at JP to leave Pumpkin on the porch, which he did, and he left. Ted, Ted come lately, came rushing down the stairs while Holly was desperately trying to get Pumpkin into the house. She was hysterical. She could hardly catch her breath and she ordered Ted to call the police again. Ted dialed 911 to report the incident. Police arrived at JP's residence again, and this time, Holly was hoping that they would arrest him. She doesn't see any two ways about it. This guy has got to be on parole. There's got to be something about this that's a clear violation. Holly reported to the responding officer that JP had come pounding on her front door, drunk or high or both, screaming profanities and threats at her and Ted, and that he threatened to harm their dog, too. When the police went over to speak to JP, he was kind of baffled at what the officer was describing as being Holly's statement. He was like, um, I don't quite remember it that way. I mean, I did go over there because her dog was in my yard again. And I told them to get him out because he keeps going potty on my grass. Holly's not making any efforts to keep her dog leashed or fenced in, nor is she picking up after him either. So this has turned into a he said, she said thing that the police just really weren't all that interested in getting involved in. Hey, you know me. It sounds kind of like at the very least, Holly should be getting a leash citation. 
Anyway, the officer thanked JP for his time and carried on with his day. For the second time now, as Holly believed that she had made two legitimate reports to the police about two incidents with JP, one of them, as she saw it, had escalated to violence and threats. She was starting to feel as though nothing was being done to help keep her safe from this man. And because she has now called the police twice on him, she's even more afraid that he's going to do something in retaliation against her. So she enlisted Ted's help in upgrading the security around their home. The first thing that she ordered Ted to do, and it seemed like it was the only thing that she did to change anything about her home security, was she demanded that Ted install several blindingly bright floodlights that illuminated Holly's entire front and backyard, the Villar's front and backyards, and of course, all of these lights lit up their bedrooms like it was the middle of the day. And really, these lights were so bright, they weren't just disruptive to the Villar's, but several of the neighbors were drawn out of their houses in the middle of the night because of it. So JP decided to go ahead and fight fire with fire, and he ended up calling the police to report the lights that were not only disrupting his family and their ability to sleep, but all the other neighbors that live nearby as well. The police showed up shortly after the call and told Holly, that they got some reports about a disturbance coming from her home. They told her that the lights were just too ridiculously bright and she needed to shut them down. She tried explaining to the police that she was in fear for her safety and for the safety of her home and Pumpkin, of course. But no matter how much she argued with the responding officers, she was told that the lights had to be turned off immediately and that she was going to have to seek out other means of security. And what Holly didn't seem to realize or understand or appreciate, like many, many municipalities, there are ordinances and codes that are enforceable when it comes to things like noise and lights. Her lights were against the town ordinance and she would be cited if she continued shining them past a certain hour at night. By the time police ordered her to turn them off, several of the neighbors had gathered. And because Holly wasn't getting her way, she felt as though now the entire neighborhood was turning against her, bullying her into submitting, forcing her to live in abject fear without having the ability to illuminate her property in order to protect herself from her violent neighbor to keep him from sneaking into her yard or worse, into her home. Holly threw a huge fit, screaming at everybody while Ted tried to get her to shut up and go into the house. Holly, with an eye, reared her ugly head and caused a big scene in the neighborhood that night. And if she wasn't angry and frustrated enough with the way her situation with J.P. Villar was being handled leading up to the incident with the floodlights, being ordered to shut them down really sent her into a tailspin. Holly was about to embark on a mission where she would stop at nothing to get J.P. Villar and his family out of that house and out of her neighborhood by any means necessary and it was going to really start getting ugly and when i say ugly i mean ugly sometime after the floodlight incident 
What actually happened next, we can't really be clear on, but we do have Laura's account as to what happened that day. That's JP's daughter. So I'll explain, and then we will see what we think. Laura was riding her bike along the street that she lived on. It's a neighborhood street. It's not a busy intersection with streetlights or anything like that. According to neighbors, on this stretch of road, which is located towards the north end of Longboat Key, where the Villars and Holly resided, the streets were hardly busy with any traffic, just neighborhood, resident traffic, that was it. And nobody really knows if this was something that Holly did out of a vindictive maliciousness, or if she just wasn't paying attention if it was deliberate or if it was an accident. But as Laura was riding her bike, Holly came driving up behind her. According to Laura, there was more than enough room for her bike and for Holly's vehicle. But Laura claimed that Holly accelerated her vehicle and purposely passed her up at a high rate of speed and made a maneuver with her car that forced Laura off the road, causing her to fall. It is Laura's belief that Holly purposely veered to the right as if she were about to strike her with her vehicle, but at the last moment straightened her car back out onto the road and sped off. When Laura ran home to tell her dad, it didn't matter to him if this was something Holly did that was intentional or if it was something that was an accident. He didn't care. He was angry and he went over to Holly's house again, pounding on the door, confronting her about nearly hitting his daughter, with her car. He yelled at her, how dare you nearly run my kid over? Stay the F away from my kid. Stay away from my family. Just stay away. Now, this was a new kind of threat that JP felt like he was getting from Holly, a threat to do actual physical harm to his eight-year-old, and he took it very seriously. Another split second, one way or the other, and Holly could have seriously injured or even killed Laura. And all of this is over her dog's damn poop in his yard. For JP, it had been a bit tit for tat up to that point, but threatening to run down his kid, it caused him a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety, not just for him, but for his entire family. What was this woman capable of? How far was she going to be taking things? The anxiety trickled down to Erica and to Laura. The fear had become very real because they really didn't see any chance of Holly letting up unless she got what she wanted. And they weren't really even sure what her end game was. And while the Villars, especially JP, took the necessary steps to make sure that they did what they needed to do, to keep themselves safe, particularly when it comes to Laura playing outside or coming into contact with Holly and Ted, because, you know, her father ordered her to keep her distance from them at all times, and he wanted her to tell him whenever anything happened. As for Ted and Holly, they see the one that JP should be looking after, that even his own family, the neighborhood, everybody needs protection from him. And Holly, she began obsessing over what in the world she could do to try and save herself and everybody else from this menace that they're all being forced to live next to. 
somebody needs to do something and she was going to be that somebody. After almost getting hit by Holly's car, Laura was scared of her and rightfully so. Again, to be fair, we don't know if it was on purpose or if it was an accident, but whatever it was, it frightened Laura and she, only eight years of age, she was also wondering what someone like that who was willing to run down a kid on a bike off the road just to try to intimidate somebody, what would somebody like her be willing to do next? The one thing that the bike incident did do was solidify the fact that there was no going back from this. The dog poop in the yard, the dog poop on the porch, the floodlights, the calls back and forth to police, things that may not have been beyond repair. That was history. When it came to Laura nearly being mowed down by Holly, there was no turning back. I don't even know if there ever was a chance of working things out prior to that, but after that, it was never going to happen. JP was absolutely enraged by Holly's behavior, and her behavior all stems from what she found out about him online. Domestic violence, drug charges, child abuse. She's just as enraged as he is, if not more so, that she's got this extremely violent neighbor next door. And her rage was being fueled by that knowledge. But dreamers, hold on tight because we're about to hit a big twist in the story here. When Holly did her research and background check on JP, she found that he had a very troubling criminal history. I've been referencing it throughout, and it has been Holly's driving force, her main motivation to do everything that she could to either drive him out of town or to have him thrown in jail. But when Holly made her internet query, she discovered that this John Villar did have a criminal record that terrified her. But John Villar was not Holly's next-door neighbor. She lived next door to Jean-Pierre Villar. Yeah, that criminal record that she thought was his wasn't. Holly was wrong, dreadfully wrong, because she's not going to know this. Nobody would. And all the while, Holly remained hell-bent on continuing her fight to get rid of him. According to Erica and Laura, and even some of the neighbors, whatever it was that Holly thought she was seeing the night she heard loud voices and went to go spying on the Villars through their window, it wasn't anything nefarious. There wasn't any abuse going on. JP was not striking Erica across the face. Of course, the Villars have no clue what Holly thought she saw, but they both insisted that JP was not abusive to either one of them, both his wife and his daughter. He never was. In fact, he was their protector. He protected them to the best of his ability. And remember, JP has a very serious back injury. He wasn't going around using his wife and kid as punching bags. The neighbors opined that Holly perhaps, through her fears steeped in what she found online, coupled with how angry she was growing because of her conflicts with JP, with everything escalating, that she might not be seeing things for what they are. 
Something as seemingly innocent as JP's wife tripping over a piece of furniture or Laura hurting herself outside in the yard could easily be misconstrued by someone who already has all of these preconceived notions in their mind about who JP was. They believed that Holly wanted to see the fighting between the couple. She wanted to be witness to the abuse. She wanted to perceive JP as a raging alcoholic and drug addict because that is what she found out about him online and that is what she believed him to be. And maybe Holly did have some concerns about JP that she believed were truly legitimate. But almost all of the things that she was claiming JP was doing, beating his wife, beating his kid, making threats, banging on her door high or drunk, none of it happened. It was just Holly's perception. And unfortunately, it was so far from reality. However, for now, the problems between the two of them, JP and Holly, were going to be set aside, at least on JP's end of things, because he was finally going to get that surgery that he needed to have on his back performed, which he had been waiting for for a while. So for him, for now, he was going to focus on that and his recovery because ultimately his goal was to get back to work as soon as possible. According to journalist Robert Patrick, JP needed several things fixed up in his back. He was going to need some carbon fiber cages fused around several vertebrae, along with a titanium rod in order to hold everything together. JP had been suffering from a lot of back pain since his injury. So this was something he was really looking forward to because over time, and even through all of his dealings and stress caused by Holly, his back was getting worse. And with each passing day, the recovery was going to take a while, but in the end, it would be worth it. So JP had his back surgery. It took many hours. It was very challenging and complicated, but it went over perfectly. Now all JP needed to do was to heal and to do his physical therapy. And I don't know if he would be as good as new, but it would alleviate his back pain immensely. He had to really take it easy though. He couldn't do much around the house. He needed a walker to get around. He really needed to be laying down as much as possible. The last thing he needed to do was like a fall or to do something around the house to have an accident that would re-injure his back. And most of all, like I've been saying, he wanted to get back to work. So he's got to stay off his feet. He has to relax. And he really needs to not have any more problems with what's her face next door, right? Erica and Laura put a bed in the living room so JP would be able to not have to go up and down the stairs, but also because the living room had the best view and it was everything that JP had wanted when he decided that Longboat Key was where he wanted to rehab his back. Holly knew that JP had his back procedure done. Whether the neighbors told her or she figured it out for herself based on her reconnaissance on the Villar family and their home, whatever the case, she knew that JP was home and that he was trying to quietly and peacefully nurse his back back to health. But you know, he's sleeping in the living room. His bed is down there. And before you know it, 
Holly is back at it with the floodlights again, this time right straight through the living room window. Knowing damn well that JP can no longer leap to his feet and go charging next door to confront her about it, not in the condition that he's in. So this time JP told Erica to get on the phone with law enforcement again and call them again and to tell Holly to get the lights turned off again, which is what they did. This time, however, Holly wasn't going to give up her fight for her right to have a nighttime light show. She hollied her way all the way down to City Hall and decided to take it up with whatever local politician who would be willing to listen to her. The dramatization that I watched of this whole thing, they pulled out all the stops. <laughs> Holly with an eye, she played the I demand to speak to the city manager card. I'm the tax paying citizen card. She had the whole deck of cards with her. They tried to get Holly to tone it down a little bit, but she kept fussing and fussing. In fact, Holly threw such a hissy fit in the city hall that the administrative staff had to have her escorted out of the building by a police officer. And she kept running her mouth all the way out the door, adding in the, don't you lay a hand on me. I'll have your job. This is an assault. <laughs> Yeah, Holly was pretty committed to it. She must have been watching some viral videos. I mean, if that was a thing in 2003, right? Okay, it wasn't. I'm just making that up. But you know what I'm talking about. She knew what she was doing. She pretty much laid the foundation and the groundwork for all the future Hollies to come. And as it were, with all the ranting and all the commitment to it, the city hall people were unwilling to budge when it came to Holly's security lights. She could not turn them on at night. It's the ordinance. She's not special. No exceptions. Get over yourself. So now Holly is convinced that not only is J.P. Villar her sworn enemy, along with his wife and his eight-year-old daughter, but also all of the neighbors and now the whole entire town of Longboat Key are all in this conspiracy against her, preventing her from protecting and securing her home. The mental and emotional tailspin that Dr. Holly Bodner has found herself in was continuing to get worse. And if you really think about it, JP hadn't really done anything threatening to her. He didn't ever do anything or act out beyond confronting her about her dog going potty in his yard and then nearly running down his daughter while she was riding her bike, really, Holly was the big air threat here. So for her to come around again with the floodlights under the guise that she is fearful for her safety because JP was allegedly a violent criminal is just nonsense because he's hardly able to move around following this back surgery. Everyone can see that he is getting around very slowly with a walker. He was hardly a threat before, and he's even less of one now. And you know, the only expert in mental health and psychology in this whole entire thing is her. But the funny thing is, everybody has pretty much reached the conclusion that she's the one with all the histrionics and all of this delusion going on in her own head. So, how's you wondering, right? Who's passing out psychology licenses in the state of Florida? 
In the meantime, little by little, JP was getting better. And despite Holly and Ted's early efforts to turn the entire town of Longboat Key against him, the neighbors have actually really come around to like the guy. I don't think anybody had necessarily made the connection that the things that Holly and Ted were saying about JP weren't true, but rather, it seems as if the neighbors have bore witness to Holly's increasingly irrational behavior and probably decided for themselves that the rumors that she was spreading about JP were all lies that she made up on her own in her ongoing battle with him. They could see for themselves that JP was hardly the menacing threat that Holly had been trying to make him out to be, especially now that he's getting around on a walker. So there was yet another incident, another confrontation, another call to police, this time outside on JP's front lawn. He was out getting a little bit of exercise, walking out there with both Erica and Laura with him. A neighbor was passing by with his dog. He stopped and checked in with JP to see how the recovery was coming along. And as the neighbor chatted with JP, Erica, and Laura, Holly's little boyfriend, Ted, happened to be walking by with Pumpkin. And there was a bit of a kerfuffle between the dogs, nothing major, but it was enough for the men to exchange some hey hey hey's and get a hold of your dog. A little bit of verbal altercation tossed back and forth, but it was enough for Ted to start in with dropping a few profanities. JP asked him to watch his language around his daughter, but Ted told him to just go and mind his own business and then it all just blew up from there. And JP, you know, this is no good for his back. He's standing up. All the dogs are tussling around. It's just chaotic. And if that weren't enough, here comes Holler and Holly with an eye screeching out of her house like a banshee while in short order the police are rolling up to the scene too. Holly is hysterical, screaming that JP was attacking Ted. The officer could clearly see that JP was in a tremendous amount of pain and discomfort and was more worried about steadying himself and preventing his back from becoming damaged than doing anything at all to Ted. Ted began accusing JP of yelling profanities when the truth of the matter was he was the one who started it with the profanities. I don't know if JP was able to maintain control and composure around his daughter and hold back from yelling curse words back at Ted, considering he wasn't physically able to do much else in the moment. But Ted also told the police officers that JP made derogatory comments about his mom and made threats to physically harm him. And all the while, Holly is screaming that JP is a violent criminal. Of the incident, responding Longboat Key Sergeant Randy Thompson stated, Mr. Villar obviously was in pain because of his back. I do recall his movements being very stiff and slow. I would have never imagined that these minor incidents in this neighbor dispute would have escalated to the point that it did. The police eventually got control of the front yard confrontation and ultimately nobody was arrested, nobody was cited or charged with anything, and Officer Thompson went along his way probably thinking that everybody else would do the same. But the neighbors here in this area, they knew better. 
They knew that Holly was on the warpath. She was fully ready to fight this tooth and nail. They'd never seen anything like it. And one of them said as she continued screaming that she would find a way to protect herself and her home. They said if her head could have been spinning, it would have been. Holly stormed off again back into her house, more determined than ever to get rid of the Villars if it's the last thing she does. The day after this front yard showdown, Holly went to the police department to attempt to have JP forcibly removed from the home. How exactly was she going to do that, you might be wondering? She claimed to the police that JP needed to undergo a 72-hour hold for a mental health evaluation. And the police were like, Lady, yeah, no, that's not happening. We all know that y'all are fighting over poop in the yard. We are not putting a mental health hold on your neighbor because you can't figure out how to clean up after your dog. J.P. Villar was hardly the violent maniac that she was trying to make him out to be. But if you think that Holly was about to allow herself to be brushed off by police for a third time, think again. And I have to say... It truly baffles me that Holly has really gone and escalated her efforts to this level even after JP has had this very serious back surgery to repair a crippling injury. It's madness that's going on here with her. But yeah, no, she's not done. Not by a long shot. What Holly decided to do next, Dreamers, it's not even funny. She's been driven to a point where she feels like she's trapped, at least in her own mind anyway. We know better, but I don't know. Doesn't seem like she does. She seems kind of like her mind is taking a walk off the deep end. Every which way that Holly has turned, she's hitting walls. To her, nobody is willing to help her get rid of her neighbor, this domestic abuser, child abuser, drug addict as she saw it. So she decided that her only recourse was to cross not only an ethical line, but a legal one too. She went to the county courthouse in April of 2003, where she had worked. She spoke to a judge, and she presented herself as JP's doctor of about a year. She claimed that JP had been physically abusing his wife during the time that she had been treating him on a consistent basis, and she feared for the life of not only his wife, but his young child as well. Holly told the judge that JP had been injured and suffered a traumatic brain injury also, that he drank all the time, that he abused narcotics. She described himself as a serious threat to his family and to others, and she needed the judge to sign the paperwork that she had prepared in order to have him forcibly committed under Florida's Baker Act. According to TurningPointOfTampa.com, the Florida Mental Health Act of 1971, also referred to as the Baker Act, allows for the voluntary institutionalization and examination of an individual. It can be initiated by judges, law enforcement officials, doctors, mental health professionals, or close friends and relatives. Specific criteria must be met in order to initiate involuntary examination. Reason to believe that the person has a mental illness the person refuses voluntary examination, 
the person is unable to determine whether examination is necessary, and the decisive criterion is there is a likelihood that without care or treatment that the person will cause serious bodily harm in the near future. Criteria are not met simply because a person has a mental illness, appears to be having mental problems, takes psychiatric medication, has an emotional outburst, or refuses voluntary examination, and if there are family members or friends that will help prevent any potential threat of substantial harm, the criteria for involuntary examination are also not met and not included in the Baker Act, developmental disability, intoxication, conditions manifested only by antisocial behavior, or conditions manifested only by substance abuse impairment. Florida is the only state that has the Baker Act, but 35 states and the District of Columbia have similar legislation called the Marchman Act, with additional laws in a handful of states with things like the 5150 hold in California, the 302 hold in Pennsylvania, Casey's Law in Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky, assisted outpatient treatment in New Jersey, and Kendra's Law in New York. Because Dr. Holly Bodner was a state-licensed psychologist, she used and abused that power in order to attempt to initiate the involuntary commitment of J.P. Villar, and she didn't even provide his correct name when she filled out the paperwork. Remember, all this time, Holly had been under the impression that Jean-Pierre Villar was John Villar, a convicted felon. In addition to that, everything Holly listed on the paperwork as criteria for him to be forcibly committed from the various behaviors she claimed to have observed in him to the flat-out lie that she had been treating him for a year for mental illness Everything was falsified. Everything was a lie. She even pulled up John Villar's criminal record that she erroneously attributed to Jean-Pierre for the judge to review. She had him thinking JP was on the brink of going on a murderous rampage. And finally, for the first time in all of the battles that Holly has had with JP, local law enforcement and City Hall, she has finally won. She was triumphant in her attempt to convince a judge that JP needed to be committed because he was an imminent threat to the community. And not only did the judge sign off on her paperwork, he told her that he was going to accelerate the process of the involuntary commitment order, and it took him all of 14 minutes to make his ruling. 14 minutes of Holly's ranting misinterpretations, her chicanery, her subterfuge. 14 minutes. When I became aware of this detail, I was like, I need to hear more about this story. But when I searched keywords and listen notes podcast search engine, absolutely nothing showed up. And I was really surprised that nobody that I was able to find across all podcasts and podcasters out there had not covered this, which is why I jumped on it. So you know which show where you heard about Florida woman, Holler and Holly first. How was something like this even possible? How was Holly with an eye able to go in there just because she felt like it, spew all of these lies about somebody 
get the guy's damn name wrong, claim to have been treating him for over a year, that he's on drugs, that he's drunk all the time, that he beats his wife and kid, yet show up armed with only some rando internet database search from years back on a guy named John. I went back and searched John Villar just to see. I got all kinds of people showing up in my search. There's a John Villar, J-O-H-N, same as the one she had found, that shows up out of Chatham, New Jersey. Nothing else about him. This guy has no photos, no places, no nothing to share, and it's probably because of Holly, to be honest. There's Jonathan Rafael Villar Roque, professional second baseman from the Dominican Republic, currently with the Seattle Mariners, previously played for the Astros, Brewers, Orioles, Marlins, Blue Jays, Mets, Cubs, and Angels. There's Juan Jose Eduardo Villar, MD, psychiatrist in Neptune, New Jersey. I found the state of New Jersey versus Juan Carlos Villar, convicted of second-degree aggravated assault, third-degree aggravated assault, and third-degree possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose. I also found Juan Villar, director of Gregorio Luperon High School in Hackensack, New Jersey. My point is, Holly would have run her search and clicked around until she found a John Villar that fit the criteria that she was looking for, that he was from New Jersey and that he had a criminal record. It was really, really reckless what she did. And I don't even really necessarily believe that she believed she was looking at the criminal record of the right person. She just wanted it to be the right person in order to suit her purposes. It would have taken just a little bit of due diligence on the part of that judge or his assistant or paralegal or someone to do a little bit of fact checking. And it would have been so easy to see that first, they had the wrong guy. Second, Holly Bodner was not JP's doctor. Third, other details that wouldn't match up. Red flags were there, but the judge wasn't looking at them. Because to answer my question, how could something like this happen? How could something so egregious slip through the cracks of the system? It's because the judge didn't want to be the one to be held responsible for the next Florida man goes on a killing spree headline. He didn't want to be that one that failed to take action when he was presented with a possible plausible threat to the community. It's frustrating because we talk about this kind of stuff. People not paying attention to the red flags. And yet when they think they are, this one time they actually do or they try to, when they see a, a potential threat, it's the wrong time, the wrong person, the wrong guy. They weren't paying attention to the right red flags. It's very tragic. I took a break from writing this overnight last night. I started watching another video that I hadn't seen before, but a case where there were so many red flags about somebody, legitimate red flags, and the family seemed to have reacted accordingly. They sought help and they tried everything in their power for years. I mean, this kid was in group homes and institution institutions for years to no avail. And I was kind of interested in learning more about the background of the case 
and maybe sharing it with you and what your thoughts are or were about whether or not enough was done on the part of the family ahead of time while attempting to possibly avert tragedy. But at the same time, most of the time, nobody could have seen these things coming. Maybe they could have, maybe they couldn't. I don't know. It's on a case-by-case basis. Maybe I will do that episode next. It's another out-of-state story, but I think it's good food for thought and conversation. But anyway, so because this judge signed off on Holly having initiated the process of having JP involuntarily committed, she has effectively used her license to practice psychology to win her war against her neighbor. And she has broken what seems to be some serious laws and should see the revocation of her license to practice. You would think, right? We'll see. The order for JP to be committed and evaluated for his apparent mental health issues, as alleged by Holly, was made official as a direct result of the aforementioned Baker Act. And if it were the local police department in Longboat Key that were given the order to take JP into custody, things may have had a different outcome. They'd been dealing with Holly and JP for months by then, closing in on a year. They know the history between these two. They know that by and large, the quarreling between them had been mostly over petty disputes with the exception of the incident when Laura was run off the road by Holly, though the police were never contacted over that incident. So as far as they know, the bickering going on between JP and Holly has been over dog poop, floodlights, and the hurling of verbal insults and threats. Today, the Longboat Key Police Department only has 20 officers, and it has likely not fluctuated all that much over the years, as the population of the town hasn't either. So you know, they are all aware, they were all aware, of what was going on with these neighbors. But they did not get the order to pick up JP. That went to the county sheriff's department, a department that had no clue about the long-standing problems between JP and Holly. And as we heard earlier from Sergeant Randy Thompson, when he went and answered one of the disturbance calls regarding the two of them, it was after JP's back surgery when he showed up. It was clear to him that JP was in a lot of pain and unable to move very well. Therefore, he did not see JP to be the menacing threat Holly was attempting to make him out to be when she was screaming that JP was attacking her boyfriend. So the sheriff's department is not going to have all of this information to go on either because I'm sure Holly didn't make that notation when she filled out the involuntary commitment order that this guy was barely mobile and needed to be handled with care when taken into custody. Yeah, she didn't say that. So the sheriffs are going to go over to his house and take him however they deem necessary. When they do show up at JP's house on April 9th, 2003, neither Erica nor Laura were there at the time. So they had no information to go on other than the order signed by that judge to have JP taken into custody. So unfortunately, when the sheriff's deputies came knocking and JP wanted to know what was going on, all that they would tell him is that he needed to come with them. He tried to explain that he can't be taken anywhere like this in his condition, 
that he had recently had surgery, that he had no intentions of resisting. He just couldn't really move in the ways that they were attempting to make him move in. So they're holding him. And you know the way law enforcement people handle individuals. It was rough. They were wanting to place him in handcuffs. And while JP is yelling out in pain and attempting to keep himself and his back from getting further injured by trying to slow down, all of this is being interpreted as him resisting arrest. And what makes this whole thing even worse is they don't even have the right guy that Holly listed as the person to be committed. She thinks this is John Villar. In reality, he's Jean-Pierre. One look at his ID or his driver's license would have and should have stopped these deputies in their tracks to make sure that they were bringing in the correct person. It should have given them pause. John and Jean-Pierre are not even close to being the same name. All they would have had to have done is called it in and had it looked up. They would have seen that JP had no criminal record as alleged by Holly in her commitment order. They would have had different birth dates. They would have had different places of residence. And if they really did their due diligence, they would have found that Dr. Holly Bodner was not even his doctor ever. I believe that the Longboat police were eventually contacted and that they did show up, but they still needed to have JP surrendered because of that court order. Because of JP's screaming in pain and yelling out for help, his neighbors were drawn out of their homes to see what the commotion was, probably, again, assuming it was Holly. They weren't wrong, but this time, Holly didn't have to come out of her house for this battle with JP. She had the sheriffs doing it for her. JP asked the sheriffs to get in touch with the Longboat Key Police Department while the neighbors tried explaining that they were making a mistake and causing him pain. But according to journalist Robert Patrick, once Holly used her position as a doctor to get JP committed under the Baker Act, there wasn't anything anyone could do to put a stop to it, not even the Longboat Key Police. And because Holly had put so much damning, albeit false, information about JP in her report, with him being a criminal, a drinker, etc., etc., that all ended up causing the sheriffs to find it necessary to manhandle him. According to his wife Erica, the way that they were handling JP by his arms, twisting them every which way, it really did a number on his back. They finally put him into the patrol car and to take him off to the hospital. They didn't have him on a stretcher or on a gurney. They should have taken him by ambulance. It had only been one month and two days since JP's back surgery, which was on March 7th, 2003. This was April 9th. JP's surgeon would later say that his initial back surgery and recovery went well, but he was re-injured during the altercation with law enforcement, which marked a worsening of JP's back pain. When Laura and Erica arrived home, they found several of their neighbors very, very distraught neighbors sitting on their front porch waiting for them. They told them that the sheriffs had come and taken JP away and they had no idea why, but it hadn't even been 10 minutes since they had left. The neighbors offered to watch Laura while Erica went to try and figure out what was going on. When the sheriffs arrived at the mental health institution where JP had been admitted, 
They refused to take him in because of the condition he was in, his recent surgery, and the fact that he was clearly in excruciating pain. So the sheriffs ended up taking him to the emergency room where he was admitted and treated for the new damage to his back. Luckily, Erica was able to quickly track JP down and they both knew right away who was behind this. But now JP's back had been damaged to a point where the pain was almost more than he could take. His hopes of healing and getting back to work and taking care of his family were shattered, all because of Dr. Holly Bodner and her deception and abuse of power. JP's daughter stated it was the first time that she had ever seen her dad, a man who had always been so strong and tenacious and able-bodied, broken down into tears over the pain that he was in. And after all that, after everything that had happened that day, JP was sent home the following day, and the mental health evaluation that there was still a court order for him to have never happened. I don't know if that had to do with JP's back being ruined because of the way he was handled by the sheriff's deputies, or if it was because somebody realized that someone massively effed this up. It doesn't seem like Holly has had all that much of a reaction to JP being brought home, but she knew there had been some serious damage done to his back, and maybe that was satisfactory enough for her considering how illegally and wrongly she went about getting that commitment order signed. I mean, what was she supposed to do now? Throw a hollering Holly hissy fit and draw more attention to what she had done? She may have even had a moment to reflect on the potential repercussions of what she did and decided to just let it go since nothing came of it anyway. But boy, this woman still wasn't done yet. Even though she has now caused JP to become completely immobile and bedridden, she was busy hatching her next plan. Not even a full day after JP arrived back home from the hospital, the Villars get yet another damn knock at the front door. This time, it's Child Protective Services. Yep, Holly has sent CPS in. I guess it's her intention to send in every single city, county, state, and federal agency that she can think of possible until something finally sticks. But the bottom line is, she's not stopping. This woman is a menace and she's a menace with a phd so someone we all know it was holly maybe we can't officially prove it or anything like that but knowing how low this woman was willing to stoop i don't think that there's any question that it was her so someone called cps and reported that jp had abused both laura and erica yeah the guy who can't get out of bed with a crippling back injury is somehow beating on his wife and kid and after talking to all three of them separately, the social worker was satisfied that there was absolutely no abuse going on in the home whatsoever. She wished them well, and she went on to her next case. By this time, the Villars were feeling pretty powerless to try and stand up to Holly. She seemed to be able to wield all of this power and influence with the sheriff's department, with the courthouse, with the justice system, with the judges with all the various agencies that she's very familiar with. I personally don't think she's making all that much headway, but she is causing a whole lot of like collateral damage. 
And to anybody and everybody who was close to this case, they will all tell you the person that they would fear the most, the person that they find to be more dangerous than any other criminal lurking in the shadows is Dr. Holly Bodner. And these are Florida people saying this, dreamers. Florida people. Holly Bodner is frightening because she's been given a license to be. The Villars feel as if there was no way to fight back against someone like her. Not too long after the involuntary commitment incident and the visit from Child Protective Services, JP could no longer endure the pain caused by the way in which he was roughed up by the sheriffs and he had to go in for a second surgery. I don't know if this is a good thing or if it gives any of us a measure of delight in all of this mess, but Holly's longtime partner slash live-in boyfriend slash alleged antiquities dealer slash personal assistant slash dog walker finally grew a pair and walked himself out on Holly. I mean, it's about time this guy did more than just walked pumpkin around the neighborhood and sat around looking at old junk to buy online. Everything Holly was doing was just too much for him to be willing to put up with it anymore. It was common knowledge around the neighborhood that Ted was like Holly's little grunt, a person for her to be the boss of, another person for her to just bully and push around. And that's totally up to him if he wanted to be that for her. But even he could see that Holly's mental and emotional stability was completely out of control. And she was totally delusional and he was over it and over her. Nobody really knew how having this breakup had an impact on Holly. Deep down, we could never really know. But I do know that she is not going to react well in the wake of this breakup. In the meantime, JP's second surgery seemed to have gone well, but the recovery process was still going to be a long one. However, shortly after he got home from the hospital, he was in the living room with Erica as she was sorting through some of their mail when she got a letter from the agency in charge of JP's workers' compensation in New Jersey, and they had come to the determination that because JP has now suffered a brand new back injury, that they are no longer responsible for covering him anymore. Not his workers' compensation pay, nor his medical bills. They terminated everything immediately, leaving him with no medical coverage and no source of income. So now the Villars are faced with losing the place that they'd been renting. They were out of money. They had nothing saved. And what made it all the more horrifying is that all of this could be done to them, all this mental, emotional, physical, and financial harm, it was all done to them by one single person. Well, as it turned out, Holly's next dramatic act was going to be something she would end up doing to herself. A friend had stopped in and discovered her laying on the living room sofa unresponsive and next to her there were some empty or almost empty bottles of prescription medications. It turned out that this was an overdose. It was considered a suicide attempt and fortunately Holly did survive. 
The neighbors, they saw and heard the emergency vehicles coming, so they assumed that something had gone wrong with JP again. But this time, the first responders were headed into Holly's house instead. When they learned that she had taken a cocktail of pills, nobody was really surprised, the Villars included. I think for everyone, it gave them a real look into the psychopathy that lay just beneath the surface of the psychologist. I wanted to share with you real quick before I moved on to the next topic here. It's a complaint that JP provided in the lawsuit filed against the county. I can find tons of information about it, but from what I can see, I believe this lawsuit was initially dismissed. And this information that I'm going to share with you now is from an appeals document. It's in his own words what happened the day that they tried to detain him. On Wednesday, April 9, 2003, at approximately 1.15 p.m., I was assaulted by Manatee Sheriff Deputy Georgie. His name was Edwin Georgie or something like that, but his last name is Georgie. On my front step while being served a Baker Act order, I was called to my front porch by a knock. I came to the door and saw what appeared to be two policemen, so I opened the door slightly and said, Can I help you? Deputy Georgie said, Manatee Sheriff's Department, would you mind stepping outside for a minute? I said, Sure. I stepped onto my stoop. Deputy Georgie said, Mr. Villar? I said, yes, that's me. He then identified themselves as the Manatee Sheriff's Department and that they were there to take me to the Manatee Glens Hospital. Deputy Georgie put his left hand on my left shoulder and his right hand against the door. Deputy Georgie informed me that I was not under arrest. However, I needed to come with them to the Manatee Glens Hospital for an evaluation. I then said, I don't know of any evaluation. I'm supposed to have and asked if this was a request made by my surgeon, Dr. Glasser. He said, no, this was ordered by judge. I'm not sure what name he said. I said, I don't know who that is and I don't know what you're talking about. I just had major reconstructive back surgery a few weeks ago and I pointed to my back brace that I was wearing. I said, I'm in no condition to go anywhere. I'm supposed to be laying down. Deputy Georgie squeezed my left arm harder and said, I don't give a goddamn shit what you're supposed to do. You are coming with us. I became very afraid of what was happening and said, please let go of my arm. You are hurting me. He then replied, shut the fuck up and get in the car. I said, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm not going anywhere with you until you get the longboat key police here. Deputy Georgie said, we don't need any goddamn longboat key police here to get permission I'm the sheriff and this is ordered by the judge and this is my jurisdiction. I became even more frightened because he wouldn't get the police on the scene. I felt myself getting upset and my back started to hurt. So I begged him, please, you're hurting me. Just get me the longboat key police on the phone. Deputy Georgie said, shut the fuck up and get into the car. I again said, I'm not going anywhere without the longboat key police here. The deputy on my right started to get closer to me. I don't know his name. And I became even more afraid and my back began hurting even more. I then said, can't I at least wait for my wife to get home? Deputy Georgie said, no, you can't. I then saw Deputy Georgie nod his head. And the next thing that happened was he grabbed my left arm to twist it. And with his right hand, grabbed my shirt above my back brace and began forcing me forward while the other deputy was twisting my right arm behind my back. As they both started forcing me to bend forward to take me down, 
This horrific pain shot through my back and down my legs. My first thought was to fall on my face and then instinctively I tried to stand up and started screaming for help. I yelled for my neighbor, Lee, and then I started crying as the pain intensified. At that point, they both started to let up on me. And as I continued to cry, Deputy Georgie waved his fingers at me in a mocking fashion and in a mocking voice said, Ah, poor baby, did I hurt you? I was crying and said, Yes, can I please go lay down? I was told no. I said, Please come inside my house and call the longboat key police and I can lay down. Deputy Georgie told the other deputy to go ahead and radio the longboat key police and then he said, you cannot go inside. I was forced to stand up until the police arrived. So are you curious as to what Deputy Georgie's statements were? Me too. His name is Edwin Georgie. Anyway, Deputy Georgie testified at his deposition that he saw the full torso back brace when Mr. Villar emerged from the back of the house where he was laying down. After Mr. Villar ambulated to the front door, deputies Georgie and Obushan explained that he needed to come with them to the Manatee Glens Hospital for an evaluation. He took Mr. Villar's left arm and Abushan took his right arm to see if they could prompt him to walk with them to one of their patrol cars. Mr. Villar stiffened up when they held his arms and screamed for them to call the longboat key police. Deputy Georgie testified that he did not have his handcuffs out, nor did Deputy Abushan attempt to handcuff Mr. Villar. Deputy Georgie testified that it was standard procedure to cuff anyone anytime he put someone in the back seat. He stated that he did not always follow procedure in the Baker Act cases because he empathized with those people. That's some weird way to show empathy, right? When Officer Kavanaugh of the Longboat Key Police arrived and later Captain Jensen, Mr. Villar agreed to go with the deputies. Deputy Georgie did not remember whether Captain Jensen offered to call an ambulance, and he did not remember whether he offered to call an ambulance before they placed him into the patrol car, but he was certainly well aware of the situation. Deputy Georgie is certain that he offered an ambulance after they left the scene and were riding in the patrol car. He stated that Mr. Villar was complaining about the pain in his back while riding in the patrol car, but that Mr. Villar declined the offer to wait for an ambulance to complete the trip to Manatee Glens Hospital. After an internal investigation into this matter, Deputy Georgie was found to have engaged in conduct unbecoming of a deputy with respect to his shock and awe tactics for using rude or insulting language offensive to the public while on duty. The findings of the internal investigation read pertinent in part. Deputy Georgie admitted to saying God damn in his shock and awe. Mr. Villar states that Deputy Georgie used the words shut the fuck up several times. Deputy Abushan stated that he does not remember Deputy Georgie raising his voice, but he does not know what was said. So their stories are... Slightly different, I would say. So anyway, because JP's workers' compensation was terminated, the Villars had to move out of that beautiful home on Longboat Key, as a landlord was forced to evict them. So Holly ended up getting her way after all this. 
She wanted JP out of the neighborhood. And in doing so, she destroyed his health and she destroyed his income. So good for her. I hope she was real happy with herself. And you know, she was for a while. Until the things that she did that were illegal and unethical caught up with her, finally. An investigation was launched. I don't know what prompted the investigation, but it may have been Erica and JP once they got settled into their new place and figured out what their next steps were going to be. It's likely they had to do a little bit of digging and they figured out on their own what Holly had done. The case was handed over to the county prosecutor, and in June of 2004, Holly Bodner was arrested and charged with perjury. I'll post her mugshot because it's just everything you would expect from somebody named Holly with an I. She kind of reminds me of Pam Hupp, you know, that wacky serial killer, the thing about Pam. Anyway, Holly didn't take her case to trial. She pled no contest and was ordered to spend 10 weekends in jail. So that would count as to what, like three days per weekend, 30 days essentially. And she was ordered to pay a $10,000 fine. And she was placed on six months of probation. When she was sentenced, Holly continued to insist that all she was trying to do was to protect herself from who she believed was a very dangerous man. But it was never really known that if at that time she knew that she had searched and found the wrong person when she looked up JP's criminal background. She might know now, but it's never really been clear when that information was discovered. The one thing she never did was admit to abusing her position as a doctor or the trust that the state of Florida invested in her. The Villars ended up in a smaller apartment, still in Florida, but far away from Longboat Key, but they felt safe for the first time in a long time. However, their problems weren't over. They weren't solved. Fast forward to November 9th, 2004. Erica had gone to work. JP was still laid up on the mattress in the living room. Laura was still being homeschooled. The day seemed to be going just as any other until Laura began hearing her dad speaking to her kind of incoherently from across the room. She approached him. He was struggling to breathe. He looked his little girl in the eye for a moment and he died. Laura was only 10. It was later determined that J.P. died of a blood clot that both his family and the Manatee County prosecutors believe was caused as a direct result of him having been forcibly detained under the Baker Act. The Baker Act that Holly started. That the judge signed. That the sheriff department served. And that nobody bothered to fact check. And whether that could ever be proven or not, if that blood clot was caused by all of this, I don't know. But I do believe with all my heart and soul that if not for Holly Bodner, 
J.P. Villar would be alive today. She settled the lawsuit that the family had filed that included her for $150,000. As for the other counties and entities involved, there is no information out there. And you know what, dreamers? The saga of Holleran, Holly with an I, is still not over yet. She was placed on a five-year probation period by the Board of Psychology, but her license to practice was not revoked by the state of Florida. She did sell the home where she had lived next door to the Villars. She seems to have had an active practice in Sarasota sometime in the recent past, but, you know, everything lives on on the internet forever. She's got some pretty bad reviews, and most of them are regarding this story. Things like, stay away from this woman. This woman is a murderer. This woman should be in jail. You know, all the good stuff that doctors just love to see in their online reviews, I'm sure. And <laughs> I'm still not done with Holly yet. In January of 2012, an article in the Sarasota, Florida patch, the headline reads, Bradenton psychologists arrested for providing pills to inmates. Yes, Holly Bodner strikes again. Bradenton is not very far from Longboat Keys. She supplied an inmate with oxycodone and lorazepam at the Sarasota County Jail, according to the sheriff's office. This is what the article said in part. A licensed psychologist from Bradenton has been arrested for illegally providing drugs to an inmate at the Sarasota County Jail. A detective had observed that Holly Bodner, 51, of the 7300 block of Kensington Court, Bradenton, agreed to supply an inmate with oxycodone and lorazepam during a pre-arranged visit at the jail, according to an affidavit. As a psychologist, Bodner could not even write prescriptions, and she was not writing prescriptions either, according to Wendy Rose, community affairs manager for the sheriff's office. Detectives from the sheriff's office monitored on four occasions in December when Bodner had met and supplied an inmate with narcotics, the sheriff's office said. Detectives recovered drugs from the inmate immediately after each meeting. During one visit that was recorded, Bodner reached into her bra and pulled out a small envelope that had 15 milligram oxycodone pills in it and handed them over to an inmate, who then placed it in his or her sock according to the probable cause affidavit. Another time, she pulled a bottle out of her bra with oxycodone pills and lorazepam. Bodner was taken into custody Friday afternoon as she arrived at the jail for another scheduled appointment with the inmate, the sheriff's office said. She is charged with four counts of delivery of a controlled substance and four counts of introduction of a controlled substance into a correctional facility. All of these are felonies. She was released on Saturday evening after posting a $4,000 bond, the sheriff's office said. Then the article went on to talk about her legal problems that resulted from her having illegally Baker acted JP. I couldn't find anything, though, on how this drug case ended. And as far as I can see, Holly never had her license revoked. However, 
This woman is on Facebook, and she has two profiles. None of them are that substantial, one more than the other. They're both pretty limited. But one of them in her intro, she wrote, Hey, so I'm a 61-year-old retired neuropsychologist. I'm a kind, generous, helpful old lady. Her profiles are public and the comments are brutal. So yeah, that is the tale of when the psychologist loses it. I hope you enjoyed this story. More than that, I hope you learned a little something. For me, it kind of confirmed that Florida does seem as wacky as everyone thinks it is. My heart goes out to Laura, Erica, and the rest of JP's family and loved ones. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams.